What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I've got special guest Dr. Stephen Husty on the line, and I'm just going to let you know off the front end, you're going to need to grab a notebook and a pen and take some notes because we dive deep into the science, the biology of all things heart, uh, especially as it pertains to the ketogenic diet, becoming fat-adapted, type 1 diabetes. Uh, we, we just dive into a lot of information here, and I, I had to re-listen this podcast after recording it because I needed to take some notes. I learned a ton and I just really, really encourage you to, uh, you know, follow along and see kind of what he's talking about and how it can be applicable to your life, whether you're type one diabetic or not. Because so much of the information about free radicals, um, heart disease, how the heart prefers ketones, oxidative stress, like it's just really informational. So get your notepad ready, sit back, relax, enjoy, learn something. Dr. Stephen Hussey. <music> Do you do you get a lot when people introduce you on a podcast? They say, "Let's get down to the heart of the matter." They, they introduce <laughs> you like that. I'll say that you're the first one, so congratulations. All right, good, good. Well, <laughs> dive in, man. Give me some background on you and and what got you in the space in the first place. Yeah, so um, I guess from a very young age, I uh, I had a lot of health issues. Uh, I mean, even at the age of two, my parents tell me that uh, that's when I was diagnosed with asthma and just had a lot of inflammatory things going on. So I had things like. Uh, I used to break out in like chronic hives all over my body. I had um, allergies, uh, obviously the asthma, and ultimately ended up with autoimmune type 1 diabetes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, I've been, you know, thrust into, or I was thrust into that that healthcare world. My parents and I were very reliant on, on Western medicine to help me um, with that condition. And I guess as I grew up and, and started looking into things deeper, I realized that you know, the, the way that it was being managed was, was not the best way to do it. And I could get much better results if I did things differently because, you know, I'd go to endocrinologists and, um, they would always just want to, you know, change my insulin levels based on what I was eating. They didn't tell me anything about what to eat. Uh, they would just say, well, when you eat this many carbohydrates, you give yourself this much insulin. And if you eat more, you just give yourself more and that's okay. And, um, that wasn't working out. I mean, it worked. It was kind of working out in the beginning, but it wasn't really working out. But you know, I'm happy to say that the changes that I've made uh, as I started looking deeper and got a medical education and and did my own research, um, I've gotten rid of all those conditions aside from the type one diabetes uh, um, because those cells are are already dead. Though I think if I if I knew then uh, back when I was diagnosed what I know now, I I think I could have reversed it. Uh, before it got too far, uh, but mm-hmm. now those cells um, are gone. Um, and so, s- since I have this condition, um, and this condition is uh, associated with you know higher rates or higher risk of heart disease, I have really been you know every time I hear something about heart disease, I've done all kinds of research. You know, I just I've really you know dove into that that subject uh, throughout my medical education. You know, every time we talk about the heart, I wanted to know everything there was. Uh, even though what they told me, I don't think was, was the best. Um, but yeah, so it, it just, you know, I've kind of threw myself into this, this condition that is the leading cause of death in the United States. So, uh, and then, and then what I found, I think is, is pretty shocking, uh, for a lot of people. Do you feel like, cause like I know a few type one diabetics and, um, it seems like a lot of times like the heart and its impact as a result of diabetes is is oftentimes not even in the same conversation. It's like they automatically go straight to insulin and they almost just overlook the heart and its relationship to it all. Do you feel like that's kind of just a common mis, 
misunderstanding that people are making? Uh, I think that, I mean, when we, when we start to talk about the imbalances that drive uh, heart disease uh, and like the true imbalances, and like not saturated fat, not cholesterol, those types of things, uh, then we start to uncover uh, how, I guess, misled uh, I was, I feel I was, uh, as far as how to manage the condition. Because when you start to see the, the true imbalances that cause it, like the oxidative stress and the not being fat burning, that kind of stuff, um, then it, it, you, know, you see how connected they are. Uh, and in reality, they say, you know, I, I remember going to the doctor's offices and, and seeing the posters when I was a kid. Like, you know, since you're, since you're diabetic, you have uh, increased risk of, um, you know, your, your feet falling off or kidney disease, your eyes going bad, all these different things. And I'd ask them why that is. And they said, you know, vascular damage. But they never said anything about how do we prevent that vascular damage. It was all just about let's manage your blood sugars with insulin, higher mm -hmm. insulin if need be. And so, you know, I've learned since then that higher insulin is not a good thing, no matter if you're type 1 or non-diabetic or type 2, you know. Uh, and so that was just not the, the approach that I wanted to take anymore. But, yeah, there was definitely a disconnect as far as um, – I guess they see the association, the connection between the two, but there was no explanation of why there's an association. Right, right. I'm curious, man, how did you like bridge the gap? Because you probably weren't getting it out of textbooks. Um, so how, how did you kind of come to the conclusion that you were going to benefit more from, you know, the low carbohydrate approach and just kind of gravitate more towards like you're pretty much carnivore right now, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it was definitely, you know, an evolution for me because it was, it was in college when I started questioning um, my endocrinologists and their approach and they were all well-intentioned people, but they just, you know, when, as I started learning, I majored in health and wellness promotion in college and just the little bits of information that I would learn there, um, the basic information about health, it, it didn't make sense as to why I would, you know, when I learned that carbohydrates were, were spiking insulin like crazy in normal people, it didn't make sense that if I was having to, to, um, to do that, like if I, my body was intolerant to, to carbohydrates pretty much, um, that I would, you know, just keep eating them and just giving myself more insulin, especially when I learned about all the different things that, that increased insulin levels can then lead to. And so that was kind of the taste of it, but I didn't really know what to do right then. So it's just been a bunch of trial and error, uh, for me. Um, and then obviously I got a little more focused in on what I mean to be doing when I got a medical education. Um, you know, we dive much deeper into physiology and then I got a, a master's degree in human nutrition, and functional medicine as well. And so that, that helped me underlie or uh, find the underlying imbalances that were driving all chronic disease. And like, you know, instead of focusing on symptoms, cause even a chiropractic education as more, you know, holistic or alternative as it is, it's still focused on, you know, what's the symptom, what's the diagnosis, how do we treat it? Um, and functional medicine was more, you know, what are the underlying balances causing those symptoms and how do we, um, fix the underlying imbalances. And so it was just kind of this gradual thing. I learned more and more and more. And then, you know, I even realized that, that functional medicine is, is, you know, pretty heavy on, um, you know, looking at symptoms and imbalances, but then just prescribing a supplement or, you know, they do work with diet, but it's not necessarily a low carb approach. And, you know, eventually I came across information, you know, ketogenic lifestyle, these types of things. And probably, you know, I, I guess at first it was paleo, probably about six, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so that started with that direction. And then eventually, um, you know, as low carbs I could go. And it was just phenomenal, the difference that I saw and how easy 
it was and how little insulin I had to use. And, you know, so, you know, when I was a kid, I remember taking, you know, 60, 70 units of insulin a day. Um, and now, you know, my, my basal rate is 21. And when I give myself insulin, like a little bit of insulin for food, it's like one or two units at a time. So I'm like no more than, than 24 units a day. Um, so, you know, I cut that in half, uh, more than, more than in half. And so I wish I've, I've been looking for, it's kind of a tangent, but I've been looking for, um, information of, you know, someone on a ketogenic diet, has anybody measured, you know, how much insulin, is there any way to measure how much insulin they secrete or their, their body uses during a day? Cause I want to compare it with mine. Cause I have complete control, however much insulin I use, you know, um, and, and see where I compare with someone else on a ketogenic diet. Um, so I find that interesting to know, but um, I'm trying to to find the right person who knows that information. But uh, but yeah, so I guess it was just that gradual progression. And then, you know, throughout that whole time, I've always been focused on the heart and how do we how do we prevent heart disease too? No, that's, that's very interesting, man. Speaking on the insulin, I, I'm, I know there's companies working on making a like a self-testing, you know, uh, device for insulin, which I'm keen to experiment with as soon as it comes out. But I actually just started working with a client that has, uh, he's type one diabetic and he's only been doing keto for about two weeks now. And mm -hmm. he's noticed that, you know, he was, I think doing 44 units of insulin a day and he was getting these, uh, a slight blood glucose drop as he slept. So we've had to start titrating his insulin down, but that's mm -hmm. obviously a good thing, you know? So what, what is, what is your, uh, like a typical day look like for you with regard to timing of when you take in the insulin, when you eat, and just kind of like how your day-to-day -day looks. Um, so I have an insulin pump. And so I use one type of insulin. It's a very fast-acting type of insulin called Novolog. Um, and I've gone back and forth between some other insulins that aren't as fast-acting just because they're cheaper and I've tried some different things. But this one seems to work the best. And so the pump will give me what's called a basal rate um, throughout the day. So it gives me about, right now it's like 0.9 units per hour or 0.9 unit per hour. So, you know, um, I get that every hour and that's kind of what I have to have. And this is what I'm so curious about. Like, you know, if someone else is eating zero carbohydrates, does their body give them some kind of basal? Um, I mean, it, it does, it gives them a little bit of a basal insulin, but how much is it? Is it comparable to what I'm doing or am I needing more? Because, you know, when, like when your body secretes insulin, it's going directly into the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas mine, I'm kind of injecting it subcutaneously and it kind of has to find its way into it, you know? So is there an absorption, no lack of absorption for me? And is, is the insulin that doesn't really get absorbed as well? Is that having an effect on me somewhere else? I don't know. Um, then there's the question of, of what is in synthetic insulin? I'm not exactly sure of that either. Uh, but yeah, so I get that basal rate, you know, throughout the day. So, um, whatever 0.9 times. 24 is just about 21 um, mm -hmm. point something. And then I give myself um, every time I eat. So I, I, you know, during, usually I intermittent fast um, pretty much every day. So um, I'll eat, uh, I won't eat breakfast. I'll eat um, around 1230 and then I'll, I'll try and eat, you know, before 630. Um, but on work days, I don't get, I don't get to eat till like 730 um, when I get home. Uh, so I'll eat two meals a day. And I'll, I'll give myself maybe one or two units, depending on how much protein I have in those meals, um, of, of that fast acting insulin. And that does it for me. I mean, I stay pretty stable, pretty predictably, um, every once in a while, 
uh, I'll get some weird spike or whatever, and I have no idea what it is. Um, sometimes, I mean, it could be stress, even though I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Bernstein and, and mm-hmm. um, his book, but he says that in the pa- all the patients he's seen, he's never really seen stress as being a factor. But we do know that cortisol has an effect on insulin, so uh, or on blood sugar, sorry. Uh, so I don't know. Um, sometimes I do get these weird spikes, and it could be an absorption thing. Maybe I need to change my site where the insulin's going in. I don't know. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of a typical day for me. Have you ever not uh, injected the insulin post meal uh, with you eating pretty much just predominantly proteins and fats to see how much of a blood glucose response you get from it? Um, yeah. So initially when I went, um, carnivore, so that was, um, I mean, I was probably like 85% animal based before this. And then about, let's see, it's been almost six months now. Uh, I'm doing this experiment where it's, it's, um, no plants. And, um, initially early on in that, maybe like the first week or two, my blood sugars were absolutely amazing. I was like, this is the coolest thing ever, you know? And I wasn't bolusing anything for meals, which was interesting to me. Um, but then over time, uh, I started noticing that, you know, when I had those, you know, obviously all I'm eating is protein and fat now, um, had those meals that things would start to elevate a little bit, you know, or still be elevated two hours later. And I was like, well, that's weird. Um, and so I started just, you know, trying out one or two units with the meals and that seemed to work just fine. So that's what I'm doing currently. What would it elevate to? Uh, just around like, uh, well, see, like usually I would check my blood sugar and then, um, and eat, uh, and then, you know, give myself the insulin before I ate. And then I wouldn't check again until the next meal. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it would, it would be getting up to like 177, 180, uh, just from the proteins and fats really. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, I mean, for a type one diabetic, that doesn't seem sound very high, you know, I mean. Uh, I mean, when I was diagnosed, my blood sugar was like 700 and obviously yeah, it yeah. hasn't been that for a long time. Um, but you know, yeah. So like for me, um, that doesn't seem like that high compared to what it has been when I've, when I've struggled with blood sugars in the past, um, right. but still higher than I want it to be. Uh, so, uh, I just thought it was interesting. I just from protein, it was doing that or, I mean, who knows, uh, it could have been my body, you know, uh, you know, working to you know, to shift over metabolically, um, you know, maybe burning more glycogen. I, I don't know what it could have been, um, but I, I seem, it seems to be that way. It's, it has stayed that way since those first two weeks. Um, so, which makes it easy and predictable. So that's nice. Did you notice you were getting even higher spikes when you were still incorporating the vegetation? Um, I, I noticed that so I had pretty much, you know, before I went carnivore, I had I'd pretty much identified that the plants that were an issue for me, like a major issue for me, you know, and that's obviously like anything with wheat, because, uh, you know, that's, that's an inflammatory condition, autoimmunity. So that was problematic for me, but also greens, like the oxalates and greens, I feel like really uh, messed with me and made blood sugars a little erratic. And I can't really explain that either because they're, you know, oxalates we, we think don't have any effect on blood sugar, but um and so I, I, before I was doing all this experimenting, like it's been a long time since I was eating, you know, higher carbohydrate foods. So I don't actually know how, um, you know, higher carbohydrate plants would be affecting me. Um, I guess I was, you know, prior to, um, going carnivore, I was still doing some sweet potatoes and, um, 
uh, yeah, I mean, sweet potatoes would, would definitely spike it really high if I didn't bolus, yeah. you know, um, but that makes sense. What about, uh, I'm totally going off a rabbit hole now, but I'm, I'm yeah. Yeah, just really intrigued by this. Um, <laughs> what about training? Do you notice any, any spikes when you're doing a lot of uh, rigorous activity? Um, no, uh, not for me anyways. I mean, so I play soccer and I lift weights and neither of those really seem to spike things too much, but it, it definitely, uh, lowered my insulin requirements like, um, longer term, you know, maybe like four or five hours later, if I was, well, let's say, you know, I, um, you know, I, I worked out and then I went to eat right after that. And I, I bolused for um that meal the one or two units that i'm giving myself um i do notice that if i if if i've worked out before that i'm more likely to drop a little more you know four or five hours later um which which is interesting to me because you know that doesn't make sense for me physiologically but it could be that for what i mean i'm like i said i'm injecting into the to the side of me here so it, it could be it's absorbing very slowly and the insulin mm -hmm. hits much later than it's supposed to um, or, or some of it is, or something like that. Um, yeah. So there's just all these little, I guess, nuances with, with being type one, because that insulin is not going directly into the bloodstream like it is for other people. Yeah. It's so interesting though, man. I feel like, like I, I'm not diabetic at all, but I want to get a CGM just so I can track on this data because I mean, every, every meal, every training session, every, you know, high stress moment, I would think would have a pretty profound impact. So it'd be curious to just have all that data. Yeah, it's just very interesting how the body works and how it responds to these things. And I think that sometimes, sometimes we get really, um, you know, focused on having you know these perfect numbers, and and obviously that's good. You want the best numbers you can have, but at the same time, I mean, people freak out about high blood pressure and things like that. And this is just an example. But you know, if your blood pressure, if your blood pressure never went up, that's not that's not an appropriate physiologic response. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's supposed to go up, and it's uh, and you know, up being up prolonged over a long period of time is, is bad for you. But like, you know, low blood pressure is probably worse for you and more dangerous than high blood pressure. Um, but you know, people just think, Oh, it's, it's supposed to be perfectly normal all the time. And it's like, that's not true. And so I, I kind of think the same things about, um, blood sugars. I mean, I think that it, there, there's probably times when, you know, a spike in it is, is a normal physiologic response. However, we don't want it to stay up there and we don't want it to happen all the time, but I, I'm actually much more worried about insulin uh, spiking because of because of the direct effects that hormone has on the rest of the body, uh, and not just being used for you know getting glucose out of the bloodstream into the cells. Um, you know, obviously, long term higher blood sugars are going to cause you know oxidative stress from glycation in products and things like that. Um, but you know, uh, a spike in blood sugar every now and then, uh, I'm kind of rationalizing with myself that you know that's not the end of the world. Um, and I think sometimes, uh, at least in the past, I know that I've been a little too obsessed with it, um, and, and maybe not give myself the slack that I need. Yeah. I mean, shoot, you've come a long way if you were uh, up in the 700s at one point now. Well, that, was when, you know, was, yeah, that was when I was undiagnosed and then we went in and found out that I was diabetic. It was, it was like off the chart 700 somewhere. Um, yeah, but I mean, in, in high school, yeah, I did not control things. And I remember being in the 300s you know, uh, on a weekly, even sometimes a daily basis, just because I don't know, I didn't, I didn't care much at that time. Yeah. Well, let, let's dive into um, all the research, man, like all the stuff that you've dove into and, and figured out and learned about since being diagnosed and just 
you know, diving deep into the research, what, what have you found? Um, I'm, I'm just scrolling on your Instagram. A lot of it's obviously about the heart and how there's so many misconceived notions about what causes heart disease, what causes heart attacks, just like flesh that out for somebody that is, I mean, just as a perfect case example, you know, when you hear keto and, and people kind of have just a very surface level understanding about what keto is, they automatically assume that they're going to give themselves a heart attack and have these blockages in their arteries. So I guess let's start with just dispelling that rumor. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, most of the keto community is familiar with, you know, Ansel Keys and his diet heart hypothesis and where that all came from, you know, back in the fifties, how he had these associational studies um, that showed, you know, he kind of cherry picked the data as well, but he, you know, chose the countries that had the, uh, that ate the most saturated fat and cholesterol and also had the higher incidence of heart disease. And he just kind of graphed those and was like, yeah, there's an association. And then for whatever reason that took off, I mean, it was, it was, I mean, Eisenhower's heart attack had a lot to do with it and the country was just freaking out about it. And so, you know, um, you know, I think that some, uh, there was some financial backing from like, um, uh, farming companies or grain companies, those types of things, sugar industry. Um, mm -hmm. and it just kind of took off and that became the conventional wisdom. And, um, but you know, we know now with modern science that, 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 that idea is not stacking up and, and that we're seeing that people with higher LDL cholesterol and eating saturated fat get much better health results, uh, when we look at them. And those are, you know, we, lots of those studies are associational as well. Um, and, but we, then when we test things and we, we look at, um, you know, LDL, uh, specifically, um, it's, you know, it's not the, the culprit of, as far as what drives atherosclerosis, it's kind of at the scene of the crime, you know, it's, it's there trying to repair things and the real culprit is this underlying inflammation. And so that's, you know, I feel like that's been hashed out, uh, over and over again, especially in keto communities. Um, but what I found interesting, what I found, um, is, is that, um, there was a guy named uh, Dr. Baraldi, who's an Italian guy, and he was doing his work around the same time that uh, he started his work around the same time that Ansel Keys came out with the diet heart hypothesis. But he was studying um, hearts. I mean, he was just basically studying or autopsying people and, and studying their hearts. And so he looked at people who died of heart attacks, he looked at people who didn't die of heart attacks, who just who died of of um, natural causes, who died of other diseases, who died of accidents when they were younger, like you know, and had no health issues. And he just started looking at their hearts on autopsy. And he found that, that sometimes, uh, someone had no medical history of, of heart disease and they were, um, you know, in their forties or fifties or something and died of an accident, um, like a car accident or something like that. Um, and when he did the autopsy, he found that they had, you know, complete blockages in their arteries and yet they had no heart symptoms and did not die of a heart attack. And then he found that there was this one study that he, he found that um, it was on uh, men in the armed forces and it was on men who died of heart attacks. Um, I think he did like uh, 430 some autopsies of these men in the army who had heart attacks and half of them did not have a clot or stenosis significant enough to cause a heart attack. And then hmm. in the other half, um, lots of times there was evidence, well, in the majority of the other half, lots of times there was evidence that that um, the clot and stenosis that was present was not the cause of the heart attack that they had. 
So for instance, they would have a clot or stenosis in the right anterior descending artery, but the, the uh, heart attack happened in an area of the less circumflex artery, you know, totally different areas. Or he would find that there was a, a clot, but it was very old. It had been there for a long time. And there's no way that, you know, this recent heart attack could have been caused by that because it had been there so long. Or he found a clot in the same area, the same artery where the heart attack happened, but it happened much further upstream. And so, but the tissue didn't die upstream. It only died in one spot lower down, you know? Um, so there was all this, you know, uh, conflicting information based on this clot theory. But then there was some that, you know, directly correlated. Yes, a clot formed um, and either got wedged in a smaller artery or in a stenosis of an artery or something and, and caused the heart attack. But um, it was a very small percentage. Uh, and so if we're thinking about you know, what, what does cause a heart attack, if it's not these, um, these clots or, or plaques um, most of the time, then what is it? And, and then the other thing is how is, how, is that, how is blood still getting its way to the tissue when there was a clot there? Even though it wasn't causing a heart attack, it was still blocking blood. And so he did this, this other study called the plastic cast study where he would inject like a plastic material into the arterial system of the heart. Kind of like you see it, like those body world exhibits where they, mm -hmm. you know, they, they map out the arterial system of, of different of uh, people and sometimes animals and things. And uh, so, he, and then he dissolved away the rest of the tissue once that plastic hardened and he was left with the perfect cast of, of the arterial system of the heart. And he found that anywhere there was more, a 70% stenosis or more, the body had built a collateral system of arteries around that stenosis. So it basically bypassed it already. And he said there was, there was anywhere from 16 to 33 different blood vessels that had built or had been built around that clot, um, depending on the size of, of the stenosis. Um, so wow, that's kind that's of crazy. how, yeah, it's, it's pretty insane. And then, so then my first question was, well, is that collateral circulation as good as the original circulation? And then he, he answered that later in his book. He said, that you know there's all these um he, i think he mentioned four case studies where there was these men who had angiograms and there was a complete blockage or or 90% blockage of of these arteries um and they were advised not to run marathons anymore because these were runners and they did it anyways so um clearly if they're running marathons this this collateral circulation is enough to compensate um you know where this this um clot is um, so interesting stuff from him there, uh, as, as far as debunking the whole clot theory, because lots of times, even like, even, um, uh, you know, reformed cardiologists, ones that have kind of thought outside the box and, and they're not against saturated fat and they're against statins and these types of things, they're still focused on this atherosclerosis and, and clot theory of heart attacks, which, which can cause some heart attacks. Um, but I would argue that that's that's kind of barking up the wrong tree as well and that that is not the cause of the majority of heart attacks what would you argue is the cause yeah so that's the question right so uh based on what i found there's there's three imbalances in the body that contribute to pretty much all chronic disease but i can string them together uh pretty nicely and show you how they they cause a heart attack so those imbalances are uh, not being fat adapted, uh, which is very relevant to the, you know, keto being in a ketogenic diet. Um, they are oxidative stress, uh, and they are an imbalance in our autonomic nervous system. 
Um, so basically, uh, not being fat adapted is, you know, relying too much on carbohydrates, preventing your body from getting into a ketotic state. And so what's interesting is that the heart, you know, despite, you know, how hard we have to work in restricting carbohydrates and maybe even doing some fastings to get our body into ketosis, our heart um, prefers ketones. So even in the presence of glucose, your, bar, your body or your heart will predominantly burn ketones um, and fatty acids. That's its preference. And so to me, there's a very good reason for that because if the heart is forced to burn predominantly glucose, bad things happen. And you can probably guess I'm going to say that a heart attack happens, but I'll show you, I'll, I'll illustrate how that is. So that's the first thing is not being fat adapted because if you're not fat adapted, then there's just more likely that your heart's going to be forced to burn um, glucose because there's just uh, less ketones around for the heart to, to um, you know, pref preferably burn. Um, so then Quick there's- question on that. Yeah. So like, you know how the brain, the ketones can cross the blood brain barrier mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, allow the brain to function, but it still requires a finite amount of glucose. Is there any type of, you know, baseline foundational need for glucose in the heart or is it completely satisfied with ketones alone? Uh, that I don't know. All I know, uh, in the studies that I've seen, um, all they've shown is that, you know, when both are present, the heart will prefer, will, will choose ketones, which the rest of the body doesn't seem to be that way. You know, when glucose gotcha. is present, it will, it will burn that first. Um, so there's something going on as far as the heart goes as, as to why the body, um, or, or why it is, it may not be the only organ or area of the body that does it, but it's just the only one I know of that will preferably burn fat and ketones rather than glucose. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so the second one is oxidative stress. So, um, you know, for those that maybe don't know what that means, it's, it's anytime our body uh, burns any type of fuel, whether it's a fat, a carbohydrate, a protein, you know, it makes ATP at the end of that, which is what we want, but it also makes waste products and it makes waste products like water, which, you know, we breathe out or we sweat out um, or it, um, and it makes heat. And so that's why we have body heat. And that's kind of a waste product uh, that comes from that process. But it also makes something called a free radical. Uh, and a free radical is basically um, a molecule with an unpaired electron, and it really wants to be paired. Um, so I, I tell people it's kind of like the Looney Tunes Tasmanian Devil. It's going around the body looking for an, uh, an electron to steal so it can be paired. And it will steal it from anything that has an electron to donate, and it will damage a tissue to get it. And so if we, um, I mean, studies have shown that when we're burning carbohydrates for fuel, we make more of these free radicals than if we burn uh, fatty acids and ketones. And so um, that's one way we can get a higher amount of these free radicals running around. Um, but also just there's different um, molecules in our environment, toxins in our environment that can cause oxidative stress as well. Um, they act like free radicals in our body. And then um, lastly, higher blood sugars will glycosylate different things or, or um, saturate things with glucose, which can cause these called advanced glycation end products, which can also act as free radicals. So there's lots of different things that can act like free radicals. And if there's lots of them in our body, um, they can cause damage. And so I think that's at the root of atherosclerosis. Um, you know, when we get um, damage to the lining of an artery, um, we have to repair it somehow and your body uses cholesterol. and you know, there's a whole another 
maybe another podcast in there about what causes atherosclerosis and, and how it forms based on oxidative stress. But the important thing for heart attacks is to remember that um, nitric oxide, which is a molecule that's made in the lining of our arteries, can act like an antioxidant. And so if we have this high amount of free radicals that need an electron to donate, they can steal it from nitric oxide and deplete our nitric oxide. And that's uh, not a good thing, as we'll, as we'll talk about. And then the third one is uh, an imbalance in our autonomic nervous system. So this is basically an imbalanced stress response. Um, we are, you know, we have this sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, you know, the rest and digest and the fight or flight um, nervous system. And we're supposed to be uh, able to go back and forth between the two um, nicely. And, you know, actually, as far as the heart goes, we're never supposed to have an increased signal of one, like, you know, a stress response signal of our sympathetic nervous system without a lesser, um, but also a stimulation of the parasympathetic. The heart is always supposed to get those two signals in conjunction, even though one could be more. And so when we find ourselves in a unnatural environment, I would argue as far as like um, cities and when we find ourselves uh, very chronically stressed from, um, you know, modern life and how it's not quite uh, the environment that, you know, humans stress response evolved in, uh, then we can find ourselves stuck in this fight or flight mode or a low grade fight or flight mode. Um, and that imbalance is actually, I think the triggering event or can be the triggering event, uh, as long as these other imbalances are in place, uh, that cause a heart attack. And so just to string all those together for you, what happens is, you know, someone's not fat adapted and they have a high amount of oxidative stress as so they depleted nitric oxide. And so, um, and then, you know, they, they start to get this imbalanced stress response, um, over time. And when, when your body is signaling, um, your stress response to heart cells and to other cells too, um, it uses these two molecules and one of the molecules goes to the heart cell and, um, stimulates the, the sympathetic, the stress response. And the other one stimulates, um, the non-stress response. But the one for the non-stress response is dependent on nitric oxide to get the signal into the cell. And so if nitric oxide is depleted because of oxidative stress, it can't get in there. And so if we have this, this chronically um, uh, imbalanced autonomic nervous system, and all of a sudden we go through a stressful event, um, and it's, I think it's no mistake or it's no coincidence, I guess, that, that heart attacks are more common on Mondays or more common on stressful days of the year, which studies have shown those associations. Um, because we get this this sudden stressful event and we get a surge of, you know, adrenaline, sympathetic um, signaling to the heart cells. And if the nitric oxide is depleted and that lesser um, surge of parasympathetic can't follow it, um, then our, our heart is forced into this adrenaline state. And so, what happens when we get, you know, an adrenaline response in our body, it reverts to burning glucose pretty readily because it's faster to burn glucose in your body's like that's a that's an advantage to burn energy faster to get you away from that threat faster or fight it off better. And so the same thing happens when we when we go for a run or exercise, you know, your body um, starts to burn uh, more glucose. That's why glycogen is stored in the, the muscle cells. And we start to get this buildup of lactic acid which is what we, the muscle burn we feel when we work out. And so if that happens in the heart, when we get this adrenaline response, it's forced to start burning glucose, uh, predominantly glucose, 
we get a buildup of lactic acid and hydrogen ions in the heart tissue. Uh, and we start to get, you know, this, this uh, burning, which is angina, the chest pain that people feel. And um, if that happens too much and we get this um, uh, increased lactic acid too much, it can actually cause the swelling um, in the heart cells. And that swelling will do one of two things. One, it will change the pressure gradient in the heart tissue. So usually the pressure is higher coming from the arteries into the tissue. But if the swelling in the tissue happens now, the blood can't get in there because the pressure gradient has changed. And so that prevents the blood from getting in there. Um, and then we get tissue death. And But that's kind of one theory. The other theory to me is is more relevant because what we see or what I've seen in some studies is that throughout a heart attack, um, oxygen doesn't change throughout the entire event until the very end when there's actually tissue death. And so to me, what makes more sense is that um, even though we get this swelling and this lactic acid buildup, the lactic acid buildup actually interferes with calcium. And we've seen that studies have shown that um, interferes with calcium absorption into the cell and without calcium, the cells can't contract. Uh, and so when they can't contract, they die. Um, and then when they die, that's when we see the oxygen change. Um, and so, you know, I didn't say anything about, you know, a, a clot or, or cholesterol or anything like that. And, and it's, it's just very interesting to me that there's, we found that, um, and there's this one study that found that heart rate variability, which is, you know, our, the measure of how balanced our stress response is like the best way to measure it, um, uh, significantly plummets, uh, in 95% of the heart attacks they studied, um, uh, like right before it, like the hour before it's going down, it's going down. And then like right before it, it just plummets. Um, and so that's that stress response happening. And then that cascade of events happens. And and to me, that's what causes the majority of heart attacks. It's very, very interesting, man. There's a whole bunch of things I want to dive into here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess just from the top being, you know, not like not uh, keto adapted, not fat adapted and relying solely on glucose. Um, I mean, it's, it's almost interesting because so many people are hesitant to start the keto diet because they're afraid it's going to give them a heart attack. Whereas in reality, if they're able to burn and utilize fat and ketones for fuel, they're kind of hedging their bets against a heart attack. Yeah, exactly. I think so. Um, just based on the fact that the heart prefers ketones. And and people will say, well, yeah, but it, you know, it prefers ketones. Um, so so how is being and and or they'll say that you know this series of events kind of forces it to burn carbohydrates so it doesn't matter if you're fat adapted or not and i i would posit that it does because you know if you have less ketones around yes it's going to burn those ketones preferably even if you have less of them around but if you get this surge it's still going to try and burn ketones you know right. but if there's less of them around it's more likely to be forced to burn predominantly glucose because it's not going to ever burn um all carbohydrate or all fats. It's just, it always predominantly burns fat and ketones um, unless it's forced to have to burn glucose. Out of curiosity, is there like a, I'm sure there's studies done to see like what locational basis uh, the majority of heart attacks take place in. I'm, I'm assuming, you know, bigger cities like New York, uh, you know, California, some, some of these just really buzz locations. I'm, I'm assuming more heart attacks happen there than than uh, like Hawaii or something that's pretty <laughs> calm, cool, and collected. Uh, yeah. So a few things there. Actually, at first I thought you were asking um, location of the heart where most heart attacks happen, and so I want to talk about that because um, 
almost 100% of heart attacks happen in the left ventricle. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the left ventricle is under the most pressure. And so any changes in pressure, like a swelling from buildup of lactic acid, is going to affect that place more because there's already more pressure there. Um, and the left ventricle, correct me if I'm wrong, I had been a while since I had my biology, but that's the, yeah. the larger of the two, correct? Yes. Well, I mean, they're kind of together, but yes, there's, there's more musculature around the left ventricle. Uh, and it's the bigger one that, that you know, um, the blood comes out of the left ventricle and goes into the aorta, out into the circulation. Um, so that's interesting there. But then as far as like geographically, the only, so I, I think this is funny because the only one I know of, I mean, there's, there's a few different studies showing an association, like I mentioned, between um, more stressful days of the year um, uh, and then it's it's common knowledge i think that most heart attacks happen on mondays um but they there was a study that showed that that um heart attacks happen more frequently around the holidays uh which is unfortunate but you know those can be stressful for a lot of people um uh and then on uh, during sporting events like big sporting events people put all this mm-hmm. money on the line and and that's very stressful um so there's that that information and it's just associational it's not you know causation or anything but it's it's an interesting association um, but as far as geographically, the only one that I know of is actually the China study, which is, you know, this, this vegan promoting study. Um, and it, you know, it showed that, I mean, it actually illustrates one of the flaws in the study when we look at it, because they, they basically looked at all these populations in, in China and they found that, um, you know, the people who ate, uh, less meat and animal products and things like that had less, um, heart disease. And so they drew conclusions from that. But if you look at where, what was happening is the people in cities were actually eating more meat. Um, and the people who lived in rural areas were eating less of it. Um, and so to me, it's like, there's so many different things about, you know, so many variables. Yeah. Yeah. So many variables, but you can't, you can't associate. I mean, these people were living in cities, higher stress, you know, uh, chasing money, toxins all around them, that kind of stuff. And these other people were, you know, in contact with nature, which, which, um, you know, is a direct stimulator of your parasympathetic nervous system. They were probably living a slower paced life, you know, um, uh, eating better food. Um, so it, it was just, it, it, it illustrates one of the flaws of the study, but it's the only one I know that, that, that shows that there's more heart disease, uh, in cities, but there's, there's probably more out there. What about uh, supplementation of um, nitric oxide? Like when you said that, I mean, that's there's so many pre-workouts that, that supplement or have nitric oxide as one of the main ingredients, just simply for the vasodilating effects. Is that something that could be incorporated to kind of mitigate the risk of depleting that? Uh, potentially, yeah. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know that there's any studies on on them, and especially especially heart attacks, but like. Um, or maybe there might be studies on nitric oxide and the molecule CGMP, which is the molecule that, you know, when the, when the parasympathetic signal gets sent to the cells, uh, that's the molecule that, that gets, um, uh, stimulated in the cell to get, to give the cell that parasympathetic signal. Um, and there may be some, some research showing that a nitric, nitric oxide supplement will stimulate CGMP, um. Um, there is there is research showing that nitric oxide is um, kind, of, kind of a modulator of that autonomic nervous system response. Um, but this is also interesting too because it goes to show that so there's certain cardiac drugs that aren't really um, specifically given to prevent heart attacks, but they end up having 
they they show that they do end up decreasing the risk of heart attacks. And so one of those is like nitroglycerin tablets, which they use for people with angina. And so, you know, they think that they're they're dilating the blood vessel and providing more blood to the area when in fact they may just be stimulating um, or allowing that parasympathetic signal to get more into the heart cell and rebalancing the metabolism in the heart, which is why they have the effect. Um, gotcha. Yeah. And so, but then there's other ones like beta blockers and ACE inhibitors and things like that, you know, more like uh, blood pressure medications and things um, uh, that have also shown to decrease risk of heart attack, but they've also been shown to increase heart rate variability. Um, so another another um, mechanism that they may not be thinking is happening or may not know is happening, which is why those drugs are working. I don't know why that's happening. I don't necessarily recommend taking them for that reason. There's definitely other ways you can you can uh, increase heart rate variability without taking those drugs. But um, but yeah, it's just interesting stuff. Yeah, don't don't take pre workout for the nitric oxide alone because that's probably going to stimulate the sympathetic more so than the parasympathetic. Yeah. Well, the actual the the actual the um, the amino acid um, that that stimulates the production of of nitric oxide is arginine, mm-hmm. um, and so you know. I forget who it was. Some guy won the Nobel Prize for that, or so him and his team won the Nobel Prize for discovering that. Um, which again tells me that you know we're supposed to be eating good protein, you know, with a complete uh, set of amino acids that will stimulate that um, that production. As long as our arteries are healthy, I haven't been able to find anything that shows a decrease in nit- nitric oxide production um, when there's more atherosclerosis. But I'm sure it's out there because if the the lining of the arteries are damaged. They're not going to be making nitric oxide as well. Is there any studies that you're aware of that, that compares uh, rate of heart disease, heart attacks with, um, you know, a heavily meat-based diet population versus that of like a vegan population? Um, not like not like clinical trial-wise, you know, but um, there's lots of associations. So the, the two um, that I know of that are probably the, uh, I guess, most well-known are the uh, Lothian uh, with a, the Leiden 85 study and then the the Lothian uh, cohort study. So these are just two studies where they they tracked a group of people uh, very long term uh, and they tracked, you know, they always had to come in and get markers so they could see where they were throughout their life. Um, and it showed that, um, you know, it showed a lot of different things. But one of the things that shows that people with higher LDL cholesterol uh, or people with um, um, they weren't tracking what they ate, but you know, um, had had less incidence of heart disease and heart attacks uh, and lived longer, uh, things like that. And they also showed they had better, less incidence of stroke, better cognition, those types of things. So, uh, I, I it, yeah, to me, it's just it, it, these; those are also associational studies, but um, that makes way more sense. And it, it and more than proving that it's uh, you know, eating saturated fats and cholesterol and, and animals and things like that, uh, more than proving that it's bad for you, it just it disproves it. So we need to look for some other reason why it's happening. You know, it's it's crazy, man. There's so many people, uh, especially you know, middle age and up, basically that are that are prescribed statins for their cholesterol mm-hmm. with the intention of preventing heart disease. So, I mean, there's just so much misinformation out there. I mean, that, I guess that just drives you crazy knowing that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so, I mean, let's talk about that. Let's talk about LDL cholesterol. Like lots of times people will go on a keto or carnivore diet and their LDL will skyrocket, you know, and Mm -hmm. their cardiologist freaks out. And the reason that is, is that 
you're you're going into you're forcing your body to to burn ketones and make ketones so you're restricting carbohydrates and so your liver is taking these fatty acids and it's uh taking those fatty acids and making ketones because it wants to burn those um and so it turns out that the same kind of pathway or or most of the same pathway that makes ketones also makes cholesterol and so by default, you just end up making more cholesterol. Um, also, people who are on these types of diets tend to uh, do more fasting. Uh, that's you know popular in this in this uh, ketogenic arena and everything. And just the state of fasting has been shown to uh, increase um, um, uh, LDL by seventy percent almost, um, just because you're fasting and your body starts to you know, take fatty acids and make ketones. So the same kind of process that I was talking about. And then the other thing is, is that since your your liver is making all this LDL cholesterol, it doesn't need to take it back in to use it for things. So it turns off all, all its LDL receptors and that leaves more of it in the bloodstream. And so, you know, we get this, this, um, this kind of hyper response, you know, this um, uh, increase in, in LDL and everybody freaks out. But if you have to, you have to look at what those type of diets also do. They also increase HDL, which is a great thing. They decrease triglycerides. Uh, they decrease markers of inflammation like C-reactive protein. Um, they tend to um, uh, balance out any insulin or blood glucose issues. So if all those things are are ideal, which this type of diet tends to do, uh, then that high LDL is not as much of an issue. Uh, it's, I would argue that it's probably not an issue at all. And it may be better for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't I don't see a red flag when I see elevated LDL, especially if like your trigs are down, your HDL is up. Like if everything else is solid, then yeah. to me, I mean, especially if you're feeling better, you're performing better, the less inflammation. I mean, so many good things can't mean that it's a bad thing overall. Yeah. Um, has there been any linked? Because like I look at, um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Dr. Peter at T. I listen to a lot of his stuff and he's, He's set on LDL as having some type of like he's taking metformin. Um, make, he he knows a lot of his stuff, but he's he's convinced that LDL has got uh, you know some negative consequences if in excess. And is there like is there any good studies that indicate that that's not the case at all if in a well adapted ketogenic athlete or individual? Um, rather? I'm trying to think. I mean, there's some good stuff that's been put out there by. Um, um, David Diamond and the other guy, I can't pronounce his name. I think it's like a Russian name. Um, and basically the title of the study is, you know, LDL cholesterol does not cause, um, heart disease. Um, and I, I would go to that study, uh, because they list it's, it's a systematic review. So they've reviewed all the, um, uh, all the research. And so I've read through that study, but I haven't looked into like the different studies that they cite there. Um, cause this is a review, so it's just looking at all the research, but there's, there's likely articles in that, uh, review that, that show this. And so this is an interesting question and this is something that, that I don't think, um, you know, other low carb people or cardiologists are aware of either. And this is kind of what I was talking about when I was like, this could be a whole nother podcast, but there's some really interesting work by a guy named Gerald Pollack and then uh, Gilbert Ling before him um, looking at water. And, you know, blood is half water. And so 
what happens is that when when water holds charge and it's put next to a, a hydrophilic surface or a water-loving surface, it forms what's called exclusion zone water or fourth phase water next to that surface. Um, and so, um, you know, he's proven this in his lab, which is using water and hydrophilic tubes. But then more recently, he's, uh, he has a graduate student that actually proved this happens in the cardiovascular system as well. And he said that, you know, they're, they're working on the manuscript and they're going to publish something soon. But um, what happens is when that layer forms in the lining of arteries, it's called exclusion zone because anything that's not it will not get through it. It excludes everything. And so they've put like red blood cells in there. They put dirt particles, all kinds of stuff, like nothing gets through it, right? And so it doesn't matter if, you're, if you have super high LDL or if you have, uh, you know, more ApoB or LP little a or whatever it is, you know, if, if we have this intact exclusion zone there, nothing's going to get through. Um, and that's why, you know, they've shown that, that the blood, the uh, red blood cells and the, and all the molecules in the blood stay toward the middle of the, the artery and the veins, because there's this exclusion zone around it. Um, but then we have to ask ourselves, okay, well then, then what breaks down that exclusion zone and ends up causing atherosclerosis and it's the oxidative stress. So, um, the way that, um, exclusion zone water forms, uh, it ends up being a very electronegative, uh, section. And so something that's electronegative has a lot of electrons to donate. And so when we have all these free radicals running around looking for electrons, they can end up stealing it from that exclusion zone water. And then eventually, if that breaks down enough, now that oxidative stress is, is free to wreak havoc on the lining of the artery, we get damage, the body responds, we get, um, um, we get atherosclerosis. And so it's very interesting to me that, you know, to think about it, if, if LDL is so causative in atherosclerosis and heart disease, but we also just talked about how atherosclerosis may not be, uh, um, as relevant as people think it is when it comes to heart attacks. But if it's, if it's the high LDL that's causing a problem, high LDL is everywhere in your blood. It's not just in some places. So why does atherosclerosis only happen in some places and not everywhere? You mm -hmm. know, it only happens in areas where there's uh, more turbulence, like when the arteries turn or they split. Uh, it happens in areas where there's high pressure. So like in the coronary arteries where the, the heart is, you know, um, expanding and tracting causing this this pressure increased pressure uh, because when there's more pressure those free radicals just get pushed up against that exclusion zone more readily and then eventually if the exclusion zone breaks down right into the side of the artery does all that make sense yeah yeah for sure so free radicals kind of like i mean that's kind of what you're pegging as the heavy hitter right now it's it's huge and and there's so many things that that can act as free radicals like i said we're talking about toxins everything from heavy metals to to plastics, to, you know, all the different little chemicals we come in contact with that we've, we kind of synthetically made, um, again, burning carbohydrates predominantly for fuel in your body will, will result in more free radical production. Um, higher blood sugars will, will damage, um, uh, things by, by saturating them with glucose, which is my big concern, you know, um, trying to keep that under control. Uh, so that we don't get that increase in oxidative stress, which causes all kinds of issues. I mean, it'll also cause mitochondrial damage, which is a, you know, a whole nother issue. But, um, but yeah, I think that is, that is the, the big hitter. Not only is it causing atherosclerosis, um, but that atherosclerosis is 
probably affecting how much nitric oxide we can make. And, um, and also um, the free radicals are depleting the nitric oxide we do make because nitric oxide can act as a, an antioxidant. So from like an actionable standpoint, what would you, like if you were to list your top, uh, you know, methods for mitigating free radical, uh, free radicals in the body, what would you, what would you say? Obviously being, you know, metabolically flexible, keto adapted, fat adapted, trying to stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system, uh, you know, re resting, relaxing, cooling off. What, what, what are some other actionable steps that you personally take and recommend? Yeah, so definitely being fat adapted, and like I like I said, you know, being being metabolically flexible, because I I don't think it's I mean I I like to stay in ketosis all the time, um, but I don't think that you have to. But the key is never you know going too far outside of it that you lose it and you have to work to get back into it. You know, it's it's staying metabolically flexible, um, and that will obviously keep your blood sugars more stable. So you're gonna have less um, uh, uh, advanced glycation end products. Um, but then I think the big one, uh, one that people, you know, even in the keto community may not be paying as much attention to is, is your toxin exposure. So really looking at your life and, um, and avoiding the toxins you can and not freaking out about the ones that you can't, because sometimes you can't avoid them all, you know? Um, but the five areas that I talk, I talk to people about like my clients and everything, um, are, uh, your food. So make sure your food is as clean as possible. So if you are doing plants, you know, organic, 100%. Um, and then, uh, you know, because that's that's a direct access to your body. If you're eating toxic food, you know, it's going to get into your, your system and cause um, oxidative stress. Um, there's your water. So especially if you're living in a city, um, and even if you're not living in a city, like I would filter your water. Uh, make sure you have a great filter that's, that's going to get everything out and then, you know, um, it'd be a good idea to add minerals back in, um, or you could, you know, find spring water, those types of things. Just make sure your water is as clean as possible because they found all sorts of toxins in, in the municipal water supply, depending on, on where you are, but everything from heavy metals to, um, estrogens to, you know, the chloride and fluoride they put in there to people throw their medications in the toilet and it doesn't get filtered out as well. And it ends up in a water supply. So it's just all kinds of stuff. Um, your air. So obviously you can't control all the air, you know, if you're going to live life, but uh, you can at least control the air, like in your house or at least your bedroom where you spend, you know, ideally eight hours a day, you know, make sure that's the cleanest air possible. I mean, this living indoors thing has really um, concentrated toxic air, you know, with all the chemicals we put into our homes and um, like in building the home, but then um, all the other things we bring into the home, like, you know, make sure we're, we get a good quality air filter. Um, not just the HEPA filter that you have in the house. That, that's great, but, you know, get another one. Um, and then the last two are like cleaning products. Like make sure you're using, I mean, really all you need is like, you know, vinegar and some water, um, maybe an essential oil if you want it to smell good or something. But, uh, you know, just going through all your cleaning products, making sure they're the, the, the least harmful to you. If you don't know how to pronounce these ingredients, they're probably not good for you. Um, you know, do your research on companies and, and make sure you find some, some cleaner ones. And then the last one's cosmetics. So, you know, for me, it has pretty much like, you need my toothpaste and, and deodorant. And so like, make sure they're the clean as possible. But like for women, you know, the makeups and everything, like there's so many things in there. There's, uh, um, there's heavy metals, especially in a lot of those makeups. Uh, and, uh, and then lots of times there's gluten in them too. So, you know, anything you put on your skin, you got to expect it's going to be absorbed into your body. Um, so just being cautious about those things like that will significantly reduce your oxidative stress because 
lots of those toxins are easy for your body to get rid of. But if you're putting them in there every day, then every day your body's having mm -hmm. to get rid of them. So, you know, just, just decreasing the amount of toxins you're exposed to can make a huge difference. Have you talked with uh, Dr. Anthony J by chance? Uh, I, a few messages on Instagram or, or comments back and forth, but nothing formally, no. But I've listened to a lot of his stuff. Yeah, he's, he's on it with the plastics and everything. So, yeah, yeah. He's, I mean, I didn't even know about all this stuff until I talked with him, had him on my podcast, and, and uh, we went for a camping trip, and I was like just blown away about yeah. all the stuff that he was rattling off that was having a, you know, this negative impact on me. And it's just like, it makes change the way you do things for sure. I mean, you, you don't recognize how big of an impact this stuff can make until you, you think about it compounded over your lifetime on a day-to-day -day basis. It's like not something to be fooled around with. Yeah. And, and if you, if you're overwhelming your body every day, like a certain percentage of that every day is going to get stored somewhere in mm -hmm. some tissue. And so, um, you know, let me take heavy metals, for example, like there's, those were, those were deposited deep in the earth's crust, you know? And so for the millions of years of our evolution, we did not come in contact with those. So we evolved no mechanism for them. Um, and they are, they're toxic. There's something we get rid of or try and get rid of right away, but they're very persistent toxins. So they get stored in tissues, especially fatty tissues. So if you're overweight, um, you probably have a lot of, you know, heavy metals and other toxins stored in, in those fat cells, but also fattier tissues like your brain. Um, and for women, like the breast tissue, um, that, I mean, I think that's a huge driver of, of breast cancer is these toxins, especially the estrogen mimickers and things. Um, so we just have to, you know, allow, give your body the chance to, um, because if those get stored in the tissue and then you're also bombarding yourself with toxins every day, your body's dealing with those toxins and not able to mobilize the ones that are stored and get rid of them. Um, so we have to decrease our toxin exposure so that we can, you know, work through those stored toxins and get them out. But that's where uh, infrared saunas are extremely useful uh, or just you know, sweating in general is extremely useful. So, you know, um, getting your sweat on every day is going to help you detox without having to force your liver to do it, uh, your liver and your kidneys. Um, but um, yeah, that's why I really like infrared saunas and, and you know, uh, being in the sun. Uh, so I, I get the sweat and I get the infrared light because the infrared light is also what Dr. Pollock found that builds that fourth phase water. It's the radiant energy that energizes the water. So you build that exclusion zone water in the lining of your blood vessels. Um, so it just goes to show we're meant to be outside um, and, and, and in the sunlight. So lots of different things there. Yeah, totally. Totally. I, I'm a big believer in getting outside and getting in the natural sunlight as much as possible. I've, I've been trying to incorporate more of the red light as well, but just simply yeah. getting outside is huge. Mm -hmm. I assume you probably have an aura ring, right? Uh, I actually had a, I had a, a bio strap, mm -hmm. um, and it broke and <laughs> I haven't gotten around to, to either replacing that one or finding a new device. Um, so it's been, it's been about a month now that I haven't been tracking things, but, uh, but yes, I mean, if you're referring to like that, as far as like my autonomic nervous system and heart rate variability balance, like something like that, it, I think is, is amazing for tracking that kind of stuff. Yeah. I just, uh, I've had an ordering for a few months now and I'm getting all this HRV data, mm -hmm. um, which is just. I, it's just interesting, man. Like people, people obsess over the data, which kind of stresses them out more and becomes a negative. So they don't <laughs> want to do that. But, you know, being mindful of what your numbers are, whether it be like your, your blood markers, your genetics, your uh, hormone levels, or just your sleep and HRV, like that stuff is just, you can't overlook it. Yeah. Especially in our, in our, our modern world that wants to drive all those numbers out of whack, you know, like mm -hmm. it's just really important to be tracking them. And then it's helpful to know 
uh, what things specifically, you know, drive them out of balance more for you. Like, you know, you can look at what happened that day and like, oh, well, why are my numbers off today? And you can say, oh, well, this happened. So you know that that's something that's going to take you out so you can prepare for it next time. Um, but you won't know that unless you're, you're tracking these things. And, and I'm, you know, I've spent my whole life tracking things. I've been type one diabetic since I was nine. And so sometimes I just get tired of it, you know? And so there'll be periods of time where I just, you know, stop obsessing with it and everything. And I, and I do that because I feel like it is almost like a stressor to me. Like you were saying, you know, it kind of has, it becomes counterproductive. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've, I've got things honed in enough that sometimes I can just take a month or two off of tracking all these things and, and, uh, and know that I'm going to be okay and just kind of focus on something else that I want to, I want to accomplish in my life, you know? Um, but like I said, I've got this good baseline and I kind of know how my body reacts to things. Yeah, definitely. As long as you get the baseline, I mean, it's, it's not, ignorance is bliss is not necessarily a good thing when it comes to modern day society. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I mean, as far as heart rate variability goes, like everybody wants to know like what it's supposed to be. What's the, what's the normal, you know, range or whatever. And really it's, it, you really just got to get your baseline and you just try and improve it from there. I mean, there's really, everyone's going to be a little different. Uh, based on, I think, how their autonomic ner nervous system developed in the first six to 12 months of life. But um, it's really just trying to improve it from there and not compare it to others, just compare it to itself and, and, and keep it um, where, you, where you feel the best uh, once you reach that spot. Totally, totally. Well, what's on the horizon, man? What do you get coming up? What, what kind of research are you digging into personally? Uh, well, I wrote, uh, I wrote a book uh, last year uh, called the health evolution. Uh, and it's kind of a, a, a big picture explanation of, of why we have chronic disease, um, as a society and then what we can do about it. And also the relationship to the, you know, our chronic disease epidemic and environmental stability. And so I've gotten a lot of questions from that, like, okay, well, how does, how does your argument in that book cause or, or explain, I guess, um, uh, certain you know, or specific diseases? And so obviously I'm pretty focused on the heart. So I'm, I'm slowly, very slowly working on a book, um, uh, about the heart and explaining how these evolutionary mismatches are causing heart disease. And obviously a lot about what we just talked about on here. Um, so that's, that's what I'm focused on there, but I'm also, um, I'm really kind of pushing, putting stuff out on my blog, which is, uh, resourceyourhealth.com. Uh, I'm trying to put out interesting stuff about the heart and just health in general. And I'm trying to really spread my message on Instagram and stuff. So, uh, and Facebook. So, um, that's the kind of stuff I'm focused on right now. And, and what are, what are those platforms? Just so we can um, all link out to them. People find you. Yeah. Yeah. My, my website is just resourceyourhealth.com, all one word, um, no dashes or anything. And then my Instagram and Facebook and Twitter is, uh, Dr. Stephen Hussey, Dr. Stephen Hussey. Um, and I, I post a lot about the heart and stuff like that. And Twitter is more, I post like research articles and things like that. It's kind of like my academic venue, but, um, but yeah, those are there. And like on my website, I have, you know, links to my book and, um, I have a heart course. Um, people can subscribe and take the, the heart course. Uh, and then I work with clients and that's through the website as well. So if people want to work with me, uh, they can do that through the website. Very cool. I'll link out those for sure. I want to get you back on though, so we can dive into the evolutionary aspect of the diet. Cause I feel like we mentioned talking about that on this podcast, but before you know it, we're an hour in and we hadn't even scratched the surface. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to. I mean, I love talking about evolution understanding where we came from is that was the whole premise of my first book. So. 
Very cool. Very cool. Well, I think it's very important to know the the history and where you've where you've come from, and we can know where you're going. I feel like people just they they don't take any consideration into the factors that have happened before them, and not knowing that or, or knowing that can mitigate a lot of mishaps going forward. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I love history and not just you know recent history, but ancient history and everything. It's just it's fascinating to me. Very cool. Well, doctor, I really appreciate the time. Uh, I learned a, a ton. I, I recognize that ignorant I am with all this stuff. So <laughs> thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Until next time, man. Have a good one. <laughs>